Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Keyforge Public Radio with your host, Zach Armstrong. Hello, dear listener, and today we are talking about handcrafting in Keyforge. We're going to talk about this so that you can use it strategically to win more games and understand some of the core mechanics of Keyforge, that as you master them, you're going to be able to make use them to make better decisions and take more effective turns, uh, choose when to make tactical decisions for your turn, strategic decisions that are a bit longer looking right and handcrafting is a big part of that especially those strategic choices small choices that look suboptimal now but are actually setting you up for a bigger payoff in the future i'm zach armstrong and here on keyforge public radio we're helping you become a more informed keyforge player with strategy topics like this one so if you enjoy improving your game and making better decisions this is for you. Uh, I've played Keyforge since 2018, and it took me a few years to really understand today's topic. And in the research for this topic, I learned even more. Believe me. Today, we're talking about handcrafting so that you can make strategic decisions which increase your chances at winning any given game of Keyforge. Handcrafting means taking small turns that later create big turns. Handcrafting means taking smaller turns that later create big turns. Now, what do I mean by that? I usually, the the main thing we're counting in small turns is actually cards being played from your hand. So handcrafting is taking these smaller turns where you're only playing a few cards from hand, still all of whatever house is available in your hand, and playing those out and drawing up. Now, the reason you're doing this is because you've calculated how many cards of each house are left in your deck, and... Uh, there is a house in your hand that you're likely to draw into. And so you're taking that chance by playing one or two cards from your hand and hopefully drawing up into more cards of another house. And you do this a number of times until you can take one big turn with that house you've been saving up all that gas together, right? So for many decks, there's a lot of value in that taking that big turn all at once. A whole bunch of cards, maybe they've got draw effects and you're drawing into more. A lot of decks uh, get really effective as you find more two-card combos, three-card combos. You create more of an advantageous game state for this house to do its thing. And as you understand Keyforge's, one of Keyforge's core mechanics, right? The house mechanic and the fact that a deck is made up of three houses of 12 cards each. The more you understand that, the better you're going to be able to know what's in your deck and then manipulate, manipulate what you can using that information to drive yourself towards success. Because you might have at the end of a game of Keyforge, and this is normal perhaps even if you've been handcrafting well, to run out of gas right? You just start to run out of answers or you have a draw up at the end of your turn and all of a sudden, well, there's just there's just nothing there. It didn't draw into anything. Now, perhaps that's happening while you've been making all of your perfect decisions because you've been binging KPR recently, uh, but maybe you weren't really paying attention to what was left in your deck and several turns earlier, you could have set yourself up for success by drawing fewer cards then or more cards now, right? So understanding, understanding the effects of this tempo 
and how your deck wants to use that, if it does, because some don't. We'll get to that a counterexample later in the episode. But if your deck wants to use this, if this really benefits your deck, then that's great. And you want to set yourself you want to set yourself and your deck that you're piloting up for success with handcrafting. So diving into the details here, handcrafting is when you take a small turn now to set up a big turn later. And here's the thing, there's risk in that, right? Because taking a small turn now, let's say I have uh, four Equidon cards in my hand and two Brabnar. If I know that there's a lot of Equidon left in that deck and there's only a few Brabnar cards left in the deck, I might really want to play those two Brabnar cards so that I can perhaps draw into more Equidon cards and play five or six Equidon cards all in one turn. And Equidon, of course, a house from Winds of Exchange, and maybe onward, we'll see. Equidon is very good at playing a bunch of cards all in one turn and getting a whole lot of synergistic effects from those cards playing together, especially when you sequence them properly and make the right decisions. Them working together is greater than just the sum of the individual parts, right? You can generate these greater effects. That's why you might take a smaller turn in Keyforge for a big one later, only playing one or two cards of house to draw up into stuff that's already in your hand and then waiting for the right game state to unleash that monster turn, right? So let's talk about those small turns. What does a good small turn look like? Because you don't want to just be playing one useless card per turn while your opponent races ahead. That might just lose you the game based on them getting ahead you know, alone. And you're not going to draw the same way. Your house you're building up to might be Brobnar in one game or it might be Equidon in another game. It all depends on how you're drawing and what your what your hand looks like, what your draw is looking like, right? So what a good small turn looks like is if you're able to play a creature or two to the board, maybe an artifact that you can activate, right? If you play a creature or two to the board and then those creatures are out on board and you've got those creatures in that sm out on the board while you can call that house again and that's your small that's your small play from hand right in in the brobnar equidon example where we've got four equidon cards in hand and two brobnar maybe we've managed to get two or three brobnar cards or some brobnar token creatures if it's winds of exchange maybe we've managed to get some brobnar out on the board and so now what we're doing is, ah, we can actually use these creatures out on the board. Maybe our Pelf is going to have our opponent lose one Amber, keep them off of that first key, right? Maybe we've got a Shock Herder we're dropping down uh, to activate to ready and fight with a Krog the Clumsy, right? And get that splash attack onto some extra creatures. So a good small turn is one that you've set up for a bit. Maybe you opened that game with a four-card Brobnar hand, and you've been playing that out, those creatures have survived, and now you can take advantage of just playing one or two Brobnar cards from hand, using what's on the board, and actually advancing your game, keeping your opponent down, working towards your outs, while setting up that really big Equidon turn later. Okay? So that's what a good small turn looks like, because what you don't want to do is just, you know, play a board wipe that kills just one or two unimportant creatures, gives you chains, and then you slowed down your draw, and you didn't actually really slow your opponent down meaningfully, you just blew up one creature, right? So you've got to be doing that math, and sometimes, you know, in many games there's bad draws, Keyforge does have its bad draws too, often the 2-2-2 the two, two, two that you might get stuck in. Right. But again, if you know that math about what's left in your deck and what the probabilities are of what you're going to draw, you can do your best work to try to make good decisions to try to get away from that. Right. Uh, so that's what a good small turn looks like is you've got some things out of the board. You opened in some strength with that house. Right. Maybe there's some things on the board, some artifacts you can activate and you're playing a few cards while building up 
uh, four, maybe five or six cards of another house for a really big turn later. And so that's handcrafting, right? That's a great example. So what does a good big turn look like? If you're building up for this, what does a really good big turn look like? So a good big turn looks like a few examples, let's say, dropping a whole lot of creatures on the board uh, along with some control as well. I have a deck that loves to spit out a whole lot of Logos creatures all at once. It manages to draw into more and more of them. And one of those is Skippy Time Hog. And it says, play, your opponent cannot use cards on their next turn. So they can still play, but they can't use. And I love this because they can't use anything. They can play, they can't use anything. So unless they have a board wipe from hand, uh, they're not going to be blowing up my Logos creatures. And so I've just taken a really huge turn. Maybe I'm playing my other house disc a little bit here and there, right? To try to get more Logos into hand. I play all those Logos at once. I'm drawing up a couple more cards and then I freeze their board. And if they don't respond to all those Logos creatures, I'm going ham the next turn, right? And so a really big turn is one in which all the cards working together present a really huge threat, especially because it's all in one turn and your opponent can't respond. Play a board wipe, fight them off the board. While it's your turn, you're doing it all at once, okay? So that's what a good, really good big turn looks like. Um, certainly some creatures. Uh, lots of two or three card synergies that start to stack. In-house Equidon, of course, you're familiar with this in Winds of Exchange, there are so many little synergies between all sorts of different cards, especially ones where you get to capture Amber and then swap control of creatures. There's multiple different cards that do this all in different ways. And the more of these you get together, the more Amber you can stack onto a creature and then send it over to your opponent's side of the board and then maybe kill it off right? And so the more cards you have all at once, the more you can pull these combos off where your opponent's not able to respond because it's Keyforge. They have to wait until their turn. So the more cards you're playing all at once, you're going to get a bigger effect that's often bigger than the sum of the parts. If you play these cards, you know, you played a couple of these cards one turn and then a couple of the next turn, you're probably not getting those combos off, or at the very least, you're giving your opponent a chance to respond, fight off a problematic creature that's going to be a part of that combo, start to play around things, right? Start to play around uh, uh, by, by messing up their board or messing with their board in a way that turns your combo off if they're seeing what you might be setting up, right? So playing it all at once is the biggest way to make sure you're getting the full value out of all of your possible combos. And some houses and some decks love to do this. It's, it's pretty common. I'm sure you've got a couple decks, even decks that are, you know, perhaps not finely tuned for, you know, uh, competitive play do actually really want to have these big plays to get you where you need to go right so that's what a good big turn looks like and so as you develop this knowledge of tempo right you're knowing when to just play one or two cards from hand to save up for a big turn later right as you develop this knowledge of keyforge's tempo it means you're gaining mastery over the house mechanic something i do regularly in matches even casual ones that i would encourage you to do as well is to count up how many cards are left of each house in your deck now of course you can't flip over your deck and look through it <laughs> and count that way but you can count how many cards are in the discard pile purged your hand in play of all the cards you own and then just reverse that math to figure out exactly how many are in the deck how many are in the deck of each house and sometimes i'll do this count and i realize wait i only have two cards of this particular house left in, in the deck uh and i've got 
two or three of those in my hand, I'm going to go ahead and play that because I'm so much more likely to draw into my other two houses and have highly efficient turns with those two houses later. And I can see based on the game state and the cards that are in my hand, what I would play now, what I might play next turn, what's coming up in one of those other houses, maybe, you know, then uh, I can play, I can play to that. I can play to that out. I can play to that out, right? And again, this is also illuminating. It's the risk of taking that smaller turn. Say I have two Star Alliance cards left in my deck. I've got two in hand, and I say, oh, sweet. Well, let me just play these. What if I draw... What if I draw well, like one Star Alliance card and one card of another house that's perhaps not really filling my hand up? Um, now, maybe I'm not totally messed up. Maybe that's not going to lose me the game. Uh, but that is kind of the worst outcome there right especially think of a time early game if you're handcrafting you're just playing one or two cards from hand saving up a bigger hand but the turn in which that bigger hand is useful never really shows up and those smaller turns where you're just playing one or two from hand your creatures kept getting fought off the board and your opponent benefits from that and and you just keep taking very small useless turns that don't really turn into something bigger so that's the danger of taking that risk with the smaller turn right but what that can turn into Playing all those smaller cards is that big turn later when somebody is complaining, oh, did you shuffle well? You know, is the shuffling algorithm on TCO broken? Uh, spoiler alert, it's not. Uh, is the shuffling algorithm on TCO broken? You like, you played all those cards at once, but you were just handcrafting, right? You were filtering what was in your hand and when and playing the game really well in a way perhaps the person didn't understand, depending on, you know, how salty they're actually being. So one example of a deck that uh, actually doesn't handcraft, but it's a great illustration of how to use that deck knowledge, right, is a deck I have called Storenholf of Oblong Cavern. It's a mass mutation deck with this, Saurian, and Untamed. This thing has 26 creatures. There's only 10 cards in the deck that aren't creatures. It's got just seven actions, three artifacts, no upgrades. You know how I was talking about the most advantageous small turn is, you know, playing a few creatures and then your one or two card turns after that, you're getting to play just one or two cards, but you're using the creatures out on the board. This this deck loves to just, it will play all of its creatures out on the board. And then after I've had a turn where I've played kind of each house once, any turn I take with cards in my hand means I'm using creatures on the board. And this thing has two board wipes, a gateway to disc, which just wipes everything and gives you three chains, and then Amber Lucian, which ends the turn and puts everybody's creatures into play ready, but under uh, by the active player's choice, right? And putting them into play ready, so skipping all the play effects and things like that. And all of these creatures are passive threats that are even just generating a threat. They're being a threat while I call other houses. And so... This deck, while it is very slow in that it doesn't have much draw, it has a few of the mutant creatures that let you reap, discard a card from your hand to draw a card, and those are very good and very helpful. But one of the reasons this deck is not nearly as slow as it looks is because I'm putting out so many creatures so often in that I'm never having to decide between, oh, do I do I pick a house that I have on the board? I always have a house on the board and can play a few more cards of that house from my hand, with some exceptions, of course, but that's the general rule, is that I just keep putting stuff out, and it just overwhelms. And so many of them are, are passive, amazing passive effects. I won't go into every detail here, but Amber Spine Mongrel, Pose Pixies, uh, uh, Piz Meyer, Cephalist, uh, stuff like this, others, three Brabble, 
which is an amazing defense against board wipes. Uh, if the opponent blows up a Brabble on their turn, they lose three Amber. It's a, uh, oh my gosh, it's it's such a fun deck. And I don't have to handcraft as much because I always have uh, a board option. There's not, there's not often tension between, oh, do I play board or do I play hand? I always get to play from my hand because there's always a board that matches it, which is an awful lot of fun. Now, I do have a Winds of Exchange deck that does really want me to handcraft. It's called Dagiera, Curator of the Battlefield. This is Equidon, Mars, and Saurian. It's a lot of fun. It's really janky, but it kind of forces me to handcraft. And here's why. It has it has two Cursed Relic. <laughs> it has two Cursed Relic. Now, Cursed Relic is an artifact from Winds of Exchange. It's in Equidon. It has the item trait. It enhances six Amber Pips into the deck. If you're unfamiliar with Enhance, any card with this keyword, uh, and it will always have Pips following it. As soon as that card is included in the deck, when the set of algorithms is making the deck, it goes ahead and puts those pips, usually very beneficial pips, right? In this case, six amber pips on random other cards in the deck. So this deck has an additional 12 amber pips because there's two Cursed Relics in here. However, Cursed Relic has some pretty inconvenient text. It says you cannot play Cursed Relic. Cursed Relic. Cursed Relic cannot be discarded from your hand except through card abilities. Uh, that's pretty tough, and there's only one, well, really two, but one important card ability in that Equidon house where I can actually get rid of this thing, and that's Trade Secrets, which says, play, discard any number of Equidon cards from your hand, steal one Amber for each card discarded this way. This Trade Secrets happens to have two Amber Pips and one Capture Pip on it. And so, what this deck wants to do is if I've got some Equidon in my hand, I would rather not call Equidon. I would rather hold off calling Equidon. And in fact, if I'm starting to build up a one or two Cursed Relics in my hand, oh man, I really don't want to call Equidon because, well, those are just dead and I want to only call Equidon once I can get rid of them. And so if I'm taking smaller turns in Mars or Saurian, what I'm doing is I'm hoping I draw up other Equidon cards, especially Trade Secrets, because Trade Secrets, boom, play that, it dumps everything from my hand, I get the Cursed Relics outright, and I steal one for every for every Equidon card discarded. That way, and that Cursed Relic turns from a liability into a steal one, right? And the Trade Secrets having those two enhanced Amber Pips is just icing on the cake, where I'm already gaining two and then stealing a bunch with that one slightly inconvenient capture in there, right? So that, that one really wants me to to handcraft because it's actually got this very, you know, almost a designed and intentional, uh, really difficult situation where I actually need to take a big Equidon turn if I'm, you know, going to be threatening in a big way. And if I don't see it, if that trade secrets gets turned into a token creature, perhaps, right, which has happened most of the games in which I've practiced with this deck, <laughs> then Cursed Relic, Cursed Relic is just sitting there and that is, that is a, a liability and it slows me down and it's a major chain right? It's a major chain. I do, of course, get pips on all these other cards I get to play, but it's a major chain and I want to be taking small turns. In fact, I'm almost forced to be taking these smaller turns for a chance at the bigger turn, at the bigger turn with that house we're building up. And in this case, it's trade secrets and just using that to discard the cursed relics and steal instead of them clogging up my hand. 
So apply this thinking to your decks. What decks do you enjoy playing? What are really good? What are some good decks that you you just you enjoy? You have a good time with? Perhaps they're competitive. You're going to really be considering taking this one uh, to to a vault tour or another large event. Just really seeing how you can do right. And how do they handcraft? Because here's the thing. This is this is the baseline, right? Assuming no card draw, no discarding from hand, no archiving. But as soon as you start to mix in that card draw, that archiving, that discarding, that going in certain for cards from your deck, right? Any of those effects really start to mess with this math in ways that, of course, you're probably controlling. That you're making informed decisions about thinning out your deck in just the right way or archiving just the right things so that you can uh, control the information that you you have, right? And figure out what you're about to draw from your deck and make decisions about card draw, archiving, and other things based on all of that information. Because this is just the base layer. As soon as you're archiving, as soon as you're drawing, all of a sudden this math starts to go in a thousand different directions. But if you've got that base mechanic down, if you're thinking about it's 12 cards in each house, there's three houses, right? You're only calling one per turn. What's left? What are my chances of drawing a particular house or what houses has the most or least left in my deck and making decisions based off of that? You're going to start pushing yourself towards victory a little bit more often. And guess what? The ceiling is so high. Go back to some old decks. Maybe you didn't think were that good or you think they're good, but you can't quite figure out because the ceiling is high. I can't tell you how many decks I've played, I thought, uh, they're okay. And then I go back six months, nine months, a year later, and I realize it wasn't the deck that wasn't good. I wasn't good enough for the deck. And now maybe I've improved as a player a little bit, and I can get a little bit closer to the skill ceiling of that particular deck. So apply that thinking, check it out. So thank you so much for joining me, Zach Armstrong, here on Keyforge Public Radio. Uh, if you're not already, I'd encourage you to check out the Patreon. You get regular updates on the show, behind-the-scenes stuff. You get to vote on content, what's going to come up, like we have an upcoming house playbook series where I do overviews of each house in Winds of Exchange and dive deep into those. And our Patreon supporters are voting on which house is first, which is next, and entirely what order we go in there among many other things. We've also got merch if you want to support the show that way, like a tote bag because we are Keyforge Public Radio, so we've got to have the tote bag and all sorts of other things. Would love to see you there. I know you're listening on some amazing uh, podcasting platform or maybe in browser. If you're not subscribed on a platform, go ahead and click subscribe there. That way you'll hear Keyforge Public Radio every time we're releasing every Wednesday. And if you've already done that, it would feel so great if you left us a review that helps other people uh, just see and believe in the show when they land on the podcast page and they say that you believe in Keyforge, you believe in Keyforge Public Radio, and uh, you were kind enough to leave a review. Thank you so much to our Airwave Advocate level Patreon subscribers like Paul Roadrunner. And like your radio dial, may your Keyforge skills always be well tuned. Visit KeyforgePublicRadio.com to find all of our episodes, transcripts, blog posts, the KPR store, and more. Keyforge Public Radio is made possible with support from listeners just like you who believe in this game and this show. When you join the Patreon, you receive access to votes on content, sneak peeks, early knowledge of interviews, access to the Discord, and other benefits. So come on down, I'd be honored if you joined us. Follow KPR on any social media platform you frequent. Just search for Keyforge Public Radio, and we're probably there. This show is produced by Rooster High Productions, which is me. And remember, dear listener, the most important part of Keyforge is the person across the table. <laughs>